Hey, podcast listeners. Before we begin this special three-part JFK assassination 60th anniversary episode, I want to invite you to visit our website at www.paranoidplanet.ca and consider supporting our show with micropayments and checking out some of the other materials on offer, including some public lectures and interviews that I gave over the past year concerning JFK and conspiracy thinking. I also want to apologize for the poor quality of the connection with our first guest, James Lambert. Although it sounds like James was calling us from the moon, he assured me that he was in Minnesota. Depending on what you think of Minnesota, you might be asking yourself, well, what's the difference? I should also apologize to those of you who tried to access our website in late October and found it to have suspiciously gone offline. You might have suspected, as we surely did, that this was caused by a heinous terrorist attack, or an angry mob of university students, or an evil conspiracy by the deep state to prevent our faithful listeners from knowing the truth. You could also have concluded, I guess, that we just forgot to pay the annual fee for our website domain. But honestly, you'd have to be pretty witless to make an assumption like that, right? Right? I'll take that silence as a yes. In the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. In the kingdom of the paranoid, the one-eyed man is a spy. This is Paranoid Planet. I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. Esta nunca ha sido dictadura, señores. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Our enemies are innovative and resourceful, and so are we. They never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country and our people, and neither do we. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. I'm not gonna give you a question. You are fake news. Silent Green is people! Welcome to episode 7.8 of the Paranoid Planet podcast. I am your host, Michel-Jacques Gagné, recording this program from a concrete pergola in Dallas's Dealey Plaza, distributing conspiracy-themed leaflets and harassing unwitting American citizens who have come here to pay their respects. Death! 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 Death to the new world order! Death to the post-human future! Death to the idea of tyranny, and our ideas will kill the fraud of corporate, big tech, SICOM, authoritarianism. Speaking of people I like to harass, my usual co-host, co-producer, and favorite umbrella gun-wielding assassin, Juan Daniel Lijo, is not here today, on account that he had a hot date in a karaoke bar. Or was it hot yoga in a Japanese restaurant? I, I, I forget. But to remedy this situation, I have a special guest to co-host this show with me today, one who's also into films and conspiracy theories, and that is James K. Lambert. James, welcome to my bunker. Thanks for having me in the bunker. Uh, what does the K stand for? Uh, Kenneth. Kenneth. Okay, I thought it would be something more exotic. Like, I don't know, like Kennedy. You know, Kennedy might, might have been cool. 
Were you the mysterious Umbrella Man in the Zapruder film? Uh, no, because I wasn't born yet. So that means you're not the Badge Man, you're not the Pickup Truck Man, you're not the Amoeba Man, and you're probably not the Babushka Lady either. Uh, unless Time Traveler is invented in the future, and when I go back to uh, well, there's a Stephen King novel where that happens, so uh, you, you never know. Yeah, it's not a bad one. It's not a bad one. Yeah, it could have been worse. There are some worse uh, time travel narratives. So here's the deal. I did a deep investigation into your internet presence, and I discovered that James K. Lambert is an attorney in Fairhope, Alabama. But then I also discovered that James K. Lambert is a former Canadian diplomat who now serves as a secretary for hemispheric affairs of the Organization of American States. And then I also discovered that James K. Lambert is a 16-year-old Irish accordion prodigy and an independent filmmaker and media professor from Minnesota whose real name is actually not James K. Lambert. So James K. Lambert, which one of these James K. Lamberts are you, if that is your real name? Uh, I wish that I was the accordion prodigy, but I'm not. Uh, so I'm... James K. Lambert, the filmmaker and uh, former media professor, but that was not my born given name. My given name was Kenneth James Pulfrell Jr., named after my dad, of course. And when I married, I took my wife's family name and I reversed my name because everybody had always called me James or Jamie. Okay. So you're not on the witness relocation program? No, I'm not. It was just because nobody ever wanted to call me my dad's name, and so it just didn't become my name. Okay, all right. So uh, you're a film teacher, is that correct? I have been, in fact, yeah. As uh, several schools in my area closed down, and I was not able to find anything substantial. Oh, that's too bad. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, okay, so now that we've confirmed your identity and we are sufficiently satisfied that you're not a Soviet spy or an extreme right-wing agent provocateur, uh, let's get to the real reason why you're here. Chapter 1. Conspiracy theorists lie. The day before President Kennedy arrived in Dallas, flyers began appearing on the streets suggesting that this man was a communist sympathizer or a communist agent who was hell-bent on destroying the Constitution and the American way of life. The accusations were typical of the far right of the time, from organizations like the John Birch Society, who had even claimed that President Eisenhower was an ideological communist actively working for the Soviets. The morning of his arrival, a full-page ad appeared in the Dallas Morning News with similar charges against Mr. Kennedy. Unfortunately, the popularity of hyperbolic conspiratorial thinking has only seemed to grow since the president's death. In a sad bit of irony, those who make the most noise about defending JFK's legacy are also the ones doing the most to perpetuate the type of paranoid nonsense he opposed. That was an excerpt of the 2015 documentary film Conspiracy Theorists Lie by today's guest co-host, James K. Lambert. 
At two and a half hours running time, this film, which mixes narrated exposition on the facts of the JFK assassination, along with conversations Mr. Lambert had with conspiracy believers in Dealey Plaza, it is still shorter than Oliver Stone's beautiful three-hour historical train wreck JFK, which we've discussed several times over the past several episodes. But today we are going to talk about why James decided to make this particular film, what he hoped to accomplish with it, whether or not he succeeded, and how long he's been secretly working for the CIA. James Lambert, uh, give us a brief synopsis of what this film is and why you decided to make it. I went to the 50th anniversary. I've been to the 40th anniversary and I went to the 50th anniversary. And at that point, I decided that something needed to be said that was not sugar-coated. Most people are like, well, you know, maybe this and maybe that. And we should listen to these people and consider those people. And what I found is that conspiracy, conspiracy theorists lie. They lie consistently. They lie to themselves. They have a false view of the world. And so I just wanted to say that right outright. And so my film looks at 50 years of various people telling various lies. And then I show myself at the 40th, what I saw there. And then at the 50th, where I really engaged with people and tried to provoke conversations with people who were true believers. And you see that they just repeat the same lies that I've already debunked earlier in the film. And that they just, they just keep repeating the same thing. So what were you hoping to accomplish? Uh, did you find that speaking to these people just proved that there's no point in arguing? Or did you find that uh, some of them responded positively and so there was some hope through discussion that you could change people's minds? Uh, I'm not very hopeful about changing people's minds. It's more about the people who are undecided, the people who have yet to go down that path. Um, and maybe, you know, the people who are kind of on that path. I, I've said that the JFK conspiracy is like the uh, gateway drug into the conspiracy community. You know, you find people who believe in 9-11 truthers and Holocaust deniers and moon landing deniers and lizard people and the QAnon people and all these things. But all of them seem to say they believe in some version of the Kennedy conspiracy. They've all, you know, come through that and then maybe gone further down the road. And so I thought maybe if I could pull people back from that and say, you know, this gateway was never something you should have walked through, it would make them question all those other things. But do you think that then your mission is more to try to um, educate individuals who don't yet believe in the conspiracy theories? Is that more the purpose of this film? Yes. The people who don't believe or the people who are like, well, you know, I've heard all this stuff and I just don't know what to believe. I think that's what a lot of people are like, well, you know, if something sticks with me, why, why this or why that, you know? Um, and so I tried to highlight some of those big, well-known lies and then show how from the smallest things to the biggest things they've been lied to. So you're from Minnesota. You went to uh, the University of North Texas. Is that in Dallas? That is in Denton. 
which uh, is Dallas, Fort Worth, and Denton is makes like a golden triangle. Okay. And I believe that's it's when you were a student there that you first kind of went to Dealey Plaza to watch one of these commemorations. Yes. I made a film when I was in graduate school on the 40th anniversary. And on that one, I, I didn't really confront that many people. I was mostly just talking to people about why they were there, what the de- plaza meant to them. Uh, what they knew about Dealey Plaza beyond the Kennedy assassination, because it really is kind of a fascinating place. Um, and I, I just observed for that. And then I went back on my own for the 50th and tried to do something more confrontational. Were you interested in JFK theories before you went down to Texas? Is this something you grew up with or did you develop an interest when you were there? I grew up in the 70s and I started watching, you know, late night movies. And one of them was Executive Action, came out in 73 and it was run on late night television before we had, you know, VCRs and rentals and whatnot. Yeah, written by Mark Lane, I should point out. Yes, Mark Lane was a, a big part of that. And it's interesting because that movie suggests that these Dallas oil men and, you know, these rich nefarious right-wingers were the ones who killed Kennedy. That was before Mark Lane developed his CIA beliefs, you know, it was like in his, evolve, his evolution of his beliefs. And so I grew up believing that and telling people, I remember one of my friends in particular that lived next door, I'm like, yeah, I watched this movie and, you know, did you know that JFK was killed by the nefarious people? And he's like, what are you talking about, you know? And then years later, him and everybody else was watching JFK, um, Oliver Stone's film. And I was like, see, I told you. And they were all believing it then. And it wasn't until the mid-90s that I started to really question these things. Now, your friends who believed it after watching JFK, are they still in the rabbit hole now? Or do you feel that uh, you've had some positive influence in pulling them out? I don't think any of them were too deep in the rabbit hole. They were just kind of like, oh, yeah, that makes sense to me. And then, you know, when things are pointed out to them, they're like, okay, that doesn't make sense. Okay. A lot of grassy knoll jokes, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Did you grow up with any interest or belief in other conspiracy theories? I I wasn't too captivated by them. I think one thing that really kept me back from, from that is that I more and more started to notice how much so many conspiracy theorists come back to the oldest conspiracy theory, which is blaming everything on the Jews. On the Jews. Yeah. I mean, that, that is like the, that's the root of Western civilization's conspiracy theory. If you go back to the Middle Ages, uh, it's stories about Jews killing Christian children, using their blood to make the, you know, Passover meal and whatnot. These are the first like international conspiracy theory where they believe this is happening all over Europe. And this is in a day before, you know, people traveled much, but they were already making up these international stories about the Jews. And the more I've seen of this is the more I see that people kind of, you know, start down this road, they go through Kennedy, maybe they stop there, maybe they go into other things, but if they really get into it, if they want to believe that there's something hidden behind the hidden, they end up at the Jews because it's the oldest conspiracy theory. And I think the more I realized that, the more I really was kind of like leery about conspiracy theories. 
And then I finally realized that even the one I believed in was wrong. In writing my book, I never got the impression that uh, the early JFK buffs, if we can call them that, uh, were anti-Semitic. Many of them came from the left, and many of them maybe were Jewish. In the in the socialist left, there's often a lot of Jewish leaders. People are not necessarily religious, but still have the heritage. Um, so in that sense, I always felt that it was not a an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. But there were a lot of anti-Semitic themes in the surrounding history of what happened in Dallas. Right, there were a number of people who hated Kennedy who can be called anti-Semites. Uh, perhaps General Walker was one of them, but certainly there were a lot of people in that movement, the right-wing anti-Kennedy movement. And interestingly, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald appears to have been uh, very hateful of these people, partly because of their anti-Semitism. Uh, he had been in love with a Jewish woman in, in Russia who had spurned him, and then he went off and married Marina very quickly after. So I think that uh, for Oswald, there was an anti-Semitic element that pushed him maybe not to kill Kennedy, but to despise the right wing. And then after Kennedy gets killed, Jack Ruby, who himself was Jewish, is afraid that all of this is a conspiracy theory against Jews, going to blame Jews. So it's interesting how even though I, I don't necessarily see the JFK theories, maybe sometimes they become that way because they go into international banking or... or Let me be clear that I'm not saying that most JFK believers are anti-Semites, but I'm saying that I was kept away from most other conspiracy theories because I noticed this pattern of the more people believe in conspiracy theories, the more they wanted to kind of wrap it all together. And the wrap it all together always ended up like the Jews. Yes, yes. And like I, I show in my film, the very first article that I know of that presented a AFK conspiracy argument was in American Opinion, which was the far right wing John Birch Society magazine. And they wrote, that was written in, uh, I believe, January and February of 64. And the man who wrote that was one of the original members of the John Birch Society. He was ultimately thrown out of the John Birch Society because he was too radical for them. And he became one of the founders of what was the Institute for Historical Review, which was the leading Holocaust denial organization. And so he definitely went down that rabbit hole and ended up blaming everything on the news. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Fletcher, I don't know how familiar you are with Fletcher Prouty, but he was kind of one of the people that I read a lot when I was a conspiracy believer. Uh, but one thing that actually eventually put some red flags is the fact that his book kept getting republished by these very extreme right-wing groups. Um, I think you mentioned one of them there. Uh, and so although although Fletcher Prouty never said anything that would could be classified as anti-Semitic, there was always the po the possibility of fitting the Jews in his grand theory because it was kind of vague. The reason I brought this up was not to criticize what you said. It was to to show that when we get to 9-11, where a lot of JFK buffs kind of jumped on the bandwagon and said, well, the men who killed Kennedy did that. Right. And I know that this is true because I was one of them. My first assumption in 9-11 was the men who killed Kennedy did that. And to my shame, I even told some of my high school students, I was teaching high school at the time, something to that order. But what was interesting, and this was brought out in uh, Jonathan Kay's book, uh, Among the Truthers, Jonathan Kay was uh, a guest on our show uh, a couple of years ago, and, and he pointed out that a lot of the 9-11 conspiracy theories got into kind of the anti-Semitic 
trope when, you know, the whole idea of Israel planting bombs in the World Trade Center. So it kind of indirectly, uh, a lot of people on the left can flirt with anti-Semitism, not as a religious thing or necessarily a race race thing, but as this idea that Israel is part of a, a global colonialist, right-wing capitalist system. I, I don't know whether to call it anti-Semitism, but it's certainly, there's a lot of anti-Israeli feeling in that particular kind of... Um, of narrative, yeah, I, I think I think you can't you can't unwrap because it is the oldest conspiracy theory. You can't unwrap anti-Semitism from pretty much any of the conspiracy camps. It always finds its way in there. And it, just one quick note, just because to be fair, as much as I think General Walker, um, he is a very interesting figure. He was a World War II veteran. He fought the Nazis. And he hated what he saw the Nazis did. And he he always insisted that he did not believe any of these anti-Jewish conspiracy theories. But he was a complete right-wing nut who spouted off conspiracy theories left and right. And a lot of the people around him, you know, that's... He, he kept on running into these people who were like, yeah, but isn't it the Jews? And he's like, no, it's not the Jews. You know, I fought the Nazis. Yeah. But he was just as nutty as them, but he, he never went to that extreme. That's a good point, because I think one of his followers, a man called Bernard Weissman, who actually was behind that full-page ad in, uh, was it the Dallas Morning News, on the day that of Kennedy's visit, he was the one who signed it as the president of this American fact-finding uh, committee. Turns mm-hmm. out it was kind of a, a bogus group, but it was made up of these former soldiers who had been followers of General Walker uh, in Europe. So uh, it shows that e- even some Jewish people were in his movement. So I, you're right, we shouldn't right. accuse him of being an anti-Semite, but there's no doubt that there were many people uh, of that persuasion who also hated Kennedy, right? A lot of people who hate Jews often hate Catholics as well, and so it becomes... Uh, and that's one of the reasons Jack Ruby liked... Um, President Kennedy, because he saw kind of a, another version of himself in the president. Right. right. Let me move on a little bit. Uh, so you've already briefly told us about the time you spent there on the 40th anniversary and the 50th anniversary. Uh, some of that is in your film. Um, now, what were your feelings between these two events? One of them, you said it was very conspiracy focused. A lot of conspiracists were there. And then on the 50th, they were kind of forced to take a back seat because it was this major official celebration. So how would you compare these two celebrations? Uh, and what, and maybe I can ask you, what are you expecting to see on the 60th, uh, which will be just a day or two after this show airs? Yeah, I'm curious. Like, I haven't really looked at what the city of Dallas is doing this time, if anything. But up until the 50th, for 49 years, they, the city of Dallas respected the Kennedy family's wishes, which is that this site did not be commemorated. This site did not be turned into something, but it became something for the conspiracy theorists. And especially on the 40th, I think that was the biggest gathering they ever had. You know, the whole plaza was blocked off. Thousands of people were there. They had a PA system. They had all these speakers. They had some people sing songs. They, you know, they, it became this whole like little kumbaya camp of conspiracy theorists. And even, even after that, um, they've continued to like, you know, 
revere this place as some kind of mecca, for lack of a better word. And on the 50th is the first time the city said, okay, we've got to do something. Even though the Kennedy family always asked us not to, we just don't want to have another spectacle like they did on the 40th. And so they brought in, um, what can I think of his name? David, um, he wrote the great John Adams biography. David Hasselhoff. <laughs> yes, that's David Hasselhoff. In his spare time, David Hasselhoff wrote that. Uh, uh, they brought in a serious historian to give a speech about Kennedy and they brought in, you know, like the Marine Corps band, whatever thing, you know, battle him in the Republic. And they had the mayor of Dallas speak and you know, they had these serious, somber gatherings. And they kept the conspiracy people off a block away in like a protest show. And that's where, um, Alex Jones and his people were like trying to stir things up. And if you were inclined to believe in a higher power, that day would have given you uh, the feeling that as soon as I, I mean, as soon as that ceremony ended, it was like the dreariest day I've ever seen in Dallas. Because normally Dallas is very nice. It was so dreary and wet. And the moment the ceremony ended, it just downpour. It's like, you know, the higher powers is waiting for the Kennedy ceremony to be over and then downpour. Are you saying that something was able to get Alex Jones to stop talking? <laughs> for a while. His mouth was full of water. And so I had to stand around there for a couple of hours waiting for the rain to die down. And then finally the the rain died down and then people started to trickle back into the plaza. And that's when I started talking to conspiracy theorists. But they were deprived of any, you know, like, any kind of festival, any kind of show, any kind of thing that they were really hoping for. Now, also, you mentioned in, uh, I read, I think it was in your article in Skeptic Magazine, though you didn't give a lot of details, you said that you met a uh, wrestler-turned-governor of Minnesota, your your home state, uh, Jesse Ventura, while you were in Dealey Plaza. Tell us a little bit what that was like. Yes, Jesse is a pretty funny guy. I'm, I voted for him back in the day. Uh, you know, he thought, you know, stir things up kind of thing. He, he turned out to be a lot nuttier than we realized uh, that came out over time. But, uh, that day in Dealey Plaza, he, you know, he was a, he's a big conspiracy believer and he's, he's done conspiracy shows and whatnot since then and made that clear. But that day in Dealey Plaza, I, you know, I grabbed him and said, Hey, I'm from Minnesota and I would love to just you know, talk to you for a little bit on camera about why you're here. And so he talked to me, it was, it was nice, but I did confront him a little bit, you know, and he's talking about all this. You can't believe this. And you can't believe that. And you can't believe this. And most of what he's saying is just not fast. And I didn't have any time to refute them. Uh, so I, I asked him when I had asked another conspiracy guy, I said, you know, why, if you had the kind of power that you can fake an autopsy, you can, Fake the ballistics evidence. You can do these incredible things. You can stop the media from publishing things. You can stop historians from finding things out. If you have that kind of power, why would you shoot a man in a public place where you don't know how many cameras are around? You know, there was a live news truck that was just around the corner that could have been broadcast live on television if it had just been parked a little bit different. 
You, know, you have no control over this place. Why wouldn't you just poison him in the White House and then just say, sorry, he died of a heart attack? Not even let people know it was in his ass anything. And he just got all upset. He's like, why would you ask me that? Well, I'm not an expert on assassination. He was a Marine, though, right? Yeah, he was a Navy SEAL, I believe. Oh, wow. So if if he, somebody else could shoot Kennedy apart from Lee Oswald, it could be Jesse Ventura. But up until then, he's like, all these facts of, you know, like how he's got it all down and he knows it. But as soon as I asked him, you know, a contrary question, he's like, I'm not an expert. You know, suddenly yeah. he's not an expert. Yeah, my question is often, well, why not just plant a bomb in one of the manholes there? That would have actually been simpler, and you don't need to stick around. You could be five miles away when that thing goes off. Yeah, and there's just no reason to kill somebody in a public place or to even acknowledge that you've killed them. I mean, if you have that kind of power, it's, just, it's not the way to go about it. And can you imagine the meeting? Like, you know, in Alder Stone's movie, they've got this smoke-filled room with all these guys who are supposed to be, like, you know, Lyndon Johnson and uh, Dulles, you know, the former CIA head. And you know, they let you know they're kind of like supposed to be those people. And imagine those guys sitting around and somebody says, I know, let's shoot them in a public place with unknown numbers of people around, unknown numbers of cameras around. And then we'll take all the evidence, we'll take the autopsy, we'll plant bullets, even though we don't know how many bullets are going to be found. and We'll just make it work. Who in that room is going to say, that is a great plan. Let's go with it. And then somebody says, and we're going to give him three days to snitch, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're going to set up this guy, and we're going to give him three days to talk to every single law enforcement person around. Yeah. The FBI, even the postal the postal service. He, he's yeah. talked to everybody. Uh, listen, Minnesota is full of other interesting people, uh, not just Jesse Ventura. Uh, you and I uh, chatted a bit about uh, Jefferson Morley, who was on our show earlier. How did you? You said you listened to Jefferson Morley, but only partially. What was your feeling yeah. about your your co Minnesota Minnesotan? What do we say? A Minnesotan? Yes. Yeah. So I listened to part of that episode because I just wanted to get a feel for your show, and I you had mentioned that you had this guy on, and I thought, okay, I'll listen to him and see. You know, he used to be a reporter for the Washington Post. You know. And, if he has some kind of legitimate objective view of things. And it just sounded so much like any of the people that I've talked to, you know, in Dilly Plaza or online or various places where it's like, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm a researcher. You know, I'm a researcher. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. And then immediately he starts throwing out this stuff about how like Oswald was silent. Well, okay. He was silent, so not the conspiracy theory. Like, he wasn't just silenced by the wind. You know, you're making up a conspiracy here. And he, he says things on your show it, that are just, he uses a passy on. You know, he says, I'm not a passy. And I, I even wrote it down because I was just like so amazed that he said it. He, he's like, we will never know what Oswald meant by it. You know, and and I'm like, that is just a blatant lie. You know, you're taking the last part of what he said and then saying, we don't know what he meant by that. When, you know, if you look at what Oswald actually said, somebody, one of the reporters said, did you shoot the president? And he said, 
No, they've taken me in because of the fact that I live in the Soviet Union. I'm just a pastor. He is very clearly saying that the police just grabbed the first comedy they could find and arrested him. He is making no claim about a vast conspiracy. He is making no claim about free knowledge, about being set up beforehand, anything. And whether or not you believe in conspiracy, believe in whatever, the, the fact is, he is making a very clear statement. He is saying, I am being arrested because I have communist beliefs. That is what he meant by Pat. There is no ambiguity whatsoever. But people like your guest will just continue to just quote the last part and then make it sound mysterious. Well, we don't know what he meant. Yeah. Whereas if you, you study Oswald's life, you find out that he definitely felt like a victim and played the victim card quite frequently. And this was just yeah. another, I mean, it, it, it fits in with a wider pattern of blaming others, of always kind of pushing the blame onto other people and not even taking responsibility for, for lying to his wife or to the authorities, to a number of people. Uh, it was obvious a lot of the questions he was asked by the police about the rifle, and yet he would say things that many of the people interviewed said, well, this was patently wrong because we know, because uh, we actually found the receipt for... Alec Hedel, and he had it in his pocket. If you have the fake ID in your pocket, how can you say you don't know anything about it? If I remember correctly, at one point, he even, when they caught him in one lie, he even said, you got me, but then just went on to another lie. <laughs> so there you go. I mean, I, I see Oswald as a conspiracy theorist. So, uh, and he was uh, quite a brazen liar. Uh, he didn't have a problem saying things that were either half-truths or full lies so that it could contribute to his particular vision of the world, which is capitalism is evil, everyone is against me, I'm a great person, but nobody understands that. Uh, the one other thing I was going to say about that, Jeffrey, what is his last name? Jefferson Morley. Jefferson Morley. He reminds me, and some people might find this mean of me to say, but he reminds me of David Irving. Oh, really? You familiar with him? Uh, he, well, he is an anti-Semite. I'm sure Jeff will yeah. take some objection <laughs> to that. But yeah, he was a Holocaust denier, I think, right? Yeah, and it, it's not because of the anti-Semitism, because I sense not, not of, none of that. But it's because David Irving is the kind of guy that, he, he's a World War II expert, and especially a battle you know, expert. I'm sure he could run rings around me telling you about the specs of tanks and the names of commanders and dates that things happened, you know, he could be very impressive with his knowledge of the Second World War. And he was really famous in the 1980s when uh, several prominent historians believed they had found Hitler's diary. And he stepped up and said, uh, no, this isn't Hitler's diary, and started to point out flaws in it, you know, things that didn't match up with the timeline and whatnot. And so he seemed like, you know, a pretty objective guy. But as time went on, he started faking evidence. He started changing the new editions of his book. And it was all in the service of trying to make it look like Hitler had nothing to do with killing of the Jews. Whatever Jews were killed were not at his orders. And that there was no real master plan to kill the Jews. It's just something that happened. It's a war crime of some people, you know, and he 
he kept moving his in that direction very deliberately. And he was actually convicted in court of, you know, facing this evidence. And that's, that's what Jefferson reminds me of. It's somebody who's very knowledgeable on like the CIA and who these people were and where they served and what they, you know, had for breakfast and whatnot. But he will just throw in these lies to push his agenda. Well, I mean, I, I I consider him my friend just because he's been he was gracious to be on my show. But at the same <laughs> time, I I do feel that I did do more pushback in that episode than I've done most of the time. And largely, it's because I felt that there were these leaps in logic. And I may know less about the CIA than he does, but I do teach critical thinking. So every now and then I'm like, well, how do you connect A and B there? It's not enough to say that they happened around the same time. You really have to, you know, if this was in court, right. you know, your argument probably wouldn't wouldn't follow. Uh, it wouldn't be accepted as particularly strong. Okay, so let me ask you a couple other questions uh, about the stuff that you've done. Uh, so you've named this documentary Conspiracy Theorist Lie. Do you make a distinction between people who deliberately distort evidence, I don't know, Alex Jones might come to mind, and those who earnestly believe in the conspiracy theory? I do, but, and it's a very important but, I believe that conspiracy thinking is a worldview. And again, people get very mad at me for this, but logically speaking, I believe it is no different than the thinking of racism. The majority of people, in my experience, still believe in some concept of race. They still think that there's some biological difference between Europeans and Africans, that somehow, you know, Europeans may be better at this, or Africans are better at that, or that somehow they can distinguish, you know, just because they can see physical differences. They think that there's some kind of genetic difference, that these are two different races. And, you know, the Human Genome Project proved that wasn't true more than two decades ago. But most people still believe that. Now, most people are not diehard, um, you know, white supremacists or something, but they still have that basic concept that there are races when there aren't. And I see that in conspiracy thinking, most people, according to um, surveys still, believe there was some kind of conspiracy in the Kennedy assassination. Most people still think that conspiracy theories on some level are reasonable. They might not believe in most of them, but they believe in the Kennedy assassination, and they believe that on some level they're reasonable, and they're not. And so it goes up. It goes up from there. There are people who actively promote lies, and there are people who believe them, but all of them are lying to themselves when they accept kind of the basic premise that somebody rules the country, somebody rules the world, somebody has such massive power that they can carry on multi-generational conspiracies. You know, that's especially when you know that the conspiracy is not true. Because nobody in 1963 can say, well, don't worry about this. Because people who aren't even born yet are going to cover it up. You know, you cannot control people in the future. You cannot 
have multi-generational conspiracies. But that is what the Kennedy assassination and so many other conspiracies are. Holocaust denial, the moon landing, you know, these things would take multiple generations of people who never profited from the conspiracy, but continuing to cover it up. And so anybody who buys into that thinking is buying into a false view of history. And I think that Voltaire said that if somebody can convince you of, um, what somebody can convince you of nonsense, they can convince you to commit atrocity. And that's what ultimately happens is that when people go down that conspiracy road, they become convinced that their worldview is so great and the enemies of humanity are so evil. They can kill the president. They can do this. They can do that. They'll, it takes over, you know, they will do anything. We saw that on Dan Six. We've seen that in many events in history. Uh, if you've ever read The Open Society and Its Enemies by Karl Popper, Popper, um, he says that both the Nazis and the, and the communists are both conspiracy theorists. They have a false view of history. The Nazis thought in terms of race, the Soviets thought in terms of class, but they both believe that there is some great enemy that rules the world so great that no matter what they have to do to stop them, is done. So if I can reiterate and, and just encapsulate what you just said, uh, some conspiracy theorists are deliberately making up non-truths for whatever personal agenda they have. Others are willing to believe things. Uh, not that they deliberately lie, but it's kind of a failure of responsible thinking. They're, they're, they're quite happy to believe in this version of things because it suits them, and, it, and they, they're not willing to put in the time to really determine what facts are true and which ones are not. Is that correct? Yeah, yes. And in the same way that people aren't willing to put in the time and see why there is only one human race, they, they see... That guy looks dark. That guy looks light. There must be different races. They, they, you have to look further than that. You have to look at the actual genes to get the answer. But most people don't look that. Far. Yeah, yeah. It makes me think. There's one thing that I uh, teach sometimes, and that's the concept of a hasty generalization. Uh, both racism and conspiracy thinking often takes some nugget of truth. You know, this person plays basketball well, or that person, you know, <laughs> that president lied under oath, and then they'll generalize that and find some larger story to fit it in. Uh, but in the end, the larger story is is basically a myth. Yes. So uh, let me move on a little bit to talk about some of the other things you've done in terms of conspiracy theories. Uh, last night I watched, uh, there's a, a documentary you did called You Don't Know Hitler, and I think that was 2006 if that's correct. Yeah, it was basically a version of my master's thesis. Okay, well, I found it interesting, but what I found the most interesting is that you made this in 2006. And while you're not really talking about Islamophobia or anti-Semitism that came out of the post-9-11 period, it seems to me that that was kind of the underlying message, if I understood it correctly. The power of propaganda that we see in the Third Reich can also be reused today to promote various conspiracy-type messages that will lead people astray from the truth, right? Am I correct in saying that's kind of what the, the film was trying to do? Uh, it's certainly a part of it, yes. Uh, you know, after 9-11, it was 
it was a troubling, difficult time. It still is because on the one hand, you have horrible accidents that have taken place in different parts of America against Muslims and against Sikhs and anybody who is seen as, you know, kind of the other. And I don't want to in any way be associated with that or condone any of that. But on the other hand, I also wanted to point out that in the Muslim world, there is the kind of propaganda going on that the Nazis used. You know, they are making the Jews out to be the slave masters of the world who must be stopped. And so I don't know how to walk that line other than to simply point it out. There are people in the Muslim world who act like the Nazis, and then there are innocent Muslims who are getting caught up in the middle of it. Yeah. What struck me the most in the film, because I was not that familiar with her, was, uh, is it uh, Lenny Riefenstahl? Le Lenny Riefenstahl. Yeah. So can you just briefly tell us who she is and why she's significant to our understanding of propaganda? Lenny Riefenstahl was a dancer who became an actress after she hurt her knee, and then she got interested in directing, and just was fascinated with the technology and became the first really great female director, arguably. He filmed the Olympics when they were in Berlin in uh, 1936. And she came up with a lot of the techniques that we would now take for granted. You know, digging a hole to put a camera in to get a good shot of the pole vault or going over the pole vault. Uh, putting a camera on a track so that you can have the camera track with the runners as they're running. You know, just a lot of the things we would take for granted in sports photography, he defined. And he also defined propaganda with her most famous film, Triumph of the Will. Anytime you see a documentary on Hitler, you see the massive crowd with Hitler and two guys walking down the middle and there's just thousands of people on either side. That's a shot from Triumph of the Will. And it makes, you know, Hitler look like some kind of godlike figure. But what I try to show in that film is that he made a film before that where she didn't have her technique down yet. And she would make, she would do stuff with Hitler that she left in because she didn't really know what she was doing. And like Hitler's fixing his hair and Hitler's kind of seen in kind of a slump position or, you know, just not looking godlike. And it, it wasn't until he kind of saw that back through but then she was able to refine this image and really present what we now think of as the, the Nazi form of propaganda that so many other countries have followed. It really shows us the power that a filmmaker has, whether it's Oliver Stone or Errol Morris. You know, I, I, I think very highly of Errol Morris, but it makes us think of how the camera can really influence the way that we think, sometimes even without words, right? Just by 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 pointing it a certain way, using particular symbols, um, it, it tends to either inspire us or inspire loathing. And these things are very hard to debunk because they're not arguments, they're images. And how do you actually fight against an image which clearly is real because it's right there on the screen? Um, so yeah, so propaganda can be very dangerous. I guess, because we're beyond words. We can't actually argue about it. It just is what it is. Yeah, and, and there's, there are things that it's arguable as to how much people pick up on them, but like there's a, there's a scene I used to show students in Triumph of the Will 
where Hitler's riding in his car, all these people are cheering, and he looks up almost like he's, you know, looking up to the side to the people in the windows waving to him. But Lanny Riefenstahl cuts to a cat who turns and looks down as if the cat is up in the window and notices Hitler. And then Hitler looks up and notices the cat. And you might, you know, might go right past you. It might subliminally suggest something to you. But he is very much saying, this man is like a god. Everything, everything, even the cat notices him. And nothing escapes his eyes. You know, that he even sees that cat turn to him. He can talk to the animals. Like, like Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> exactly. And it, there are so many things like that going on that some of it has an effect. Some of it is going to play on people and make them think things that they wouldn't otherwise think. Yeah. It's not just conspiracy theorists. A lot of people engage into this myth of Camelot, including Kennedy's wife, that elevate him into the kind of a, a mythic hero. Even sometimes I say Jesus 2.0. You know, when you look at the way that Kennedy is portrayed by Oliver Stone or others, you think this is like a secular messiah figure. The Prince of Peace has come back to save the world, but they killed him, and therefore we're left with nothing. No, the messiah did not resurrect in this case. We're the ones who have to pick up the pieces. So I find it's very despairing of a message rather than... I don't know, one that maybe is about Nelson Mandela or someone like that, where they inspire you, even though they didn't fulfill the full mission, they inspire you to keep going. There isn't the same kind of despair uh, when, you, when, you listen, you know, when you watch movies about Mandela, Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr. You know, all people who died at some point uh, and were tragic heroes, Mandela was not assassinated, but they don't give you that kind of sense that everything is lost, so we have to take up the battle ourselves almost in a dying cause. Whenever I, I listen to various biographies of conspiracy theorists, and I'm including like uh, um, uh, Robert Grodin. I think you tried to meet him on Daily Plaza, but he kind yeah. of just bypassed you. He's in the video, but you're not <laughs> looking at him. Yeah. You know, Robert Grodin has a very tragic life. He, he went through a divorce. He spent a lot of time in kind of this, you know, kind of a pack rat in a house that's not really, he can't even invite friends to in order to spend his Saturdays distributing literature in, uh, in Dealey Plaza, right? There's something very religious, but it's not a very uplifting religion. I find it's, it's more of a despairing religion in the way that it's affected his life. Would you agree? I, I would very much agree on that. He seems like a very tragic figure, everything that I know about him. And I'm very much of the, the opinion um, that I don't want to criticize Jackie Kennedy, for the tragedy that she went through, I understand, you know, he wanted the best for her husband and his legacy, but she was so calculating. I mean, the, the funeral that she orchestrated for him and the way that she got the whole world, you know, I mean, the amount of world leaders that came to Kennedy's funeral and walked with her is outrageous. You know, it's, she, what he was able to pull together in a few days, um, he, he, he turns him into this mythical figure. And then he very deliberately made it Amazon. You know, nobody ever used that before. You know, Kennedy's administration was about the new frontier. That's what he was telling. And all of his men were new frontier men. That's, that was the, 
the watchword of the Kennedy administration. It wasn't until after he died that Steve Barry deliberately gave this interview and knew that, you know, he was going to be asked, like, what did you and Dak do, you know? And, and she said, well, you know, sometimes we'd like to put on Camelot and listen to the music. Dak just loved that. And he wanted to suggest that he was this tragic figure, this Camelot, this, you know, King Arthur figure that we just we lost and we'll never get back. And then the Kennedy people started putting out their biographies and they really pushed that message, what Jackie wanted. And, and it, a lot of it was just very false history about Vietnam and about Kennedy's involvement in Vietnam. And then you, you get people like Oliver Stone who believed that he had to fight in Vietnam because of horrible people who killed Kennedy. I'm sorry, but he had to fight in Vietnam because Kennedy got deep into Vietnam. That's, that's the reality. But people don't see that. They see Camelot. Yeah. Well, James K. Lambert, I'm going to have to uh, put a cap on it there. There's a lot more that we could talk about. But before we end, you're working on a book called The Fake History of America. I read the, the first chapter that's on your website. How are you getting on with this book? And how else can other people reach out to read or watch your material? Uh, well, the best thing to do is just go to jameskaylambert.com. I'm trying to kind of redefine my site and make a new blog. And, uh, and I've got the first chapter of the book on there. I've got a lot written, uh, but I, I'm still trying to come together on what really all my arguments are. <laughs> That's kind of the problem I've, I've always had is that I just have too many arguments to make, too many points to highlight. But I, I really am trying to say something about the fact that most people believe in some fake version of history, not necessarily even conspiracy theory, but, you know, we want to overly romanticize this person or overly vilify that person or romanticize a certain era or a certain idea into something that wasn't. So then we can feel better about our view of the world because we believe the history matches with you know, our view of the world. And I think, you know, people are always going to do that. But I do think that the Kennedy assassination makes kind of a break where for the first time you had a majority of Americans believing in a massive conspiracy theory and really um, believing in such fake history that it's kind of spiraled out of control from there. And of course, the internet and other things have contributed to that. But the fact that a majority of Americans continue to believe that the government either covered up or killed and then covered up the truth about the Kennedy assassination, it opens up a whole new reality that is very dangerous for America. And I think that things really changed from that moment on. Well, James, thank you very much. It was great to have you on, and uh, hopefully we stay in touch. Thank you. I appreciate it. Chapter 2, The Grassy Knoll Rifle Delivery Service, The Case of Julia Ann Mercer. And I was driving west on Elm Street toward the triple underpass in a rented car. A light blue valley. I will never forget that day. There was quite a bit of traffic, and I stopped alongside the screen pickup truck. 
And I remember it being very noticeable because it had one of its wheels parked up on the side of the curb. And then when I saw the gun, I thought, well, the Secret Service is not very secret. And then the next morning on Saturday, I went down to the FBI office and the agents showed me some photographs and I picked out three pictures that looked generally like the driver of the truck. That's the man. You mean you identified Jack Ruby on Saturday? That's right. The day before he shot Oswald? That's right. When I saw him on TV, I was shocked. I turned to my family and I said, that's the man I saw in the truck. But you didn't seem nearly so sure in your statement to the Warren Commission. What about these others? You said one of them might be him. They look a little bit like him, but I'm sure this is the man. Well, that's what bothers me, Mr. Garrison, is they've been altered. My statements. See, this one here says, Mercer could not identify any of the photographs as being identical with the person that she had observed slouched over the wheel of a green Ford pickup truck. Well, that is not true. I never said any such thing. I recognized him, and I told him so. Let's take your time. Be sure. I'm sure. And then here on the Dallas Sheriff's Report, this is really strange. You see that notarized signature right there at the bottom of each page? That is not my signature. And there never was any notary present during any of my questioning. In 1966, American lawyer and paranoia peddler Mark Lane published a book titled Rush to Judgment. It was one of the first and most influential conspiracist interpretations of the murder of President Kennedy. In this book, Lane argued that the racist Dallas Police Department and its anti-liberal allies wrongfully arrested, scapegoated, and murdered Lee Harvey Oswald to cover up the work of right-wing, pro-war, anti-civil rights extremists inside the government. Lane had not yet begun implicating the CIA in this scheme, nor offered his services to New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, who launched a bogus crusade to convict businessman Clay Shaw for Kennedy's murder, nor yet proclaimed the innocence of James Earl Ray, Martin Luther King Jr.'s convicted assassin, nor yet facilitated the mass suicide of over 900 members of the People's Temple in Jonestown by filling their heads with claims that the CIA was coming to get them. All this would come after Rush to Judgment became a bestseller, and before it was discovered that, unbeknownst to Mr. Lane, much of the donations that helped him get the book published came from a Soviet KGB disinformation program. Twenty-five years later, Oliver Stone's famous film JFK recycled many of Mark Lane's alleged proofs of a massive conspiracy. These include a scene featuring a 23-year-old married woman named Julia Ann Mercer, who, the film tells us, saw Jack Ruby delivering a rifle to the grassy knoll in Dealey Plaza, a few steps away from the place where many conspiracists claim a second gunman later fired the fatal headshot that killed Kennedy in his passing motorcade. Less than two hours before the assassination, reads Mercer's statement to the sheriff's office, she drove past a green pickup truck parked alongside Elm Street. The truck was obstructing traffic and causing a slowdown. There, she says, she witnessed two suspicious-looking men, one in the driver's seat, the other in the rear cab of the truck, whom she said wore a plaid shirt and a stocking hat with a tassel, or what we here in Canada call a toque. He was unloading what she described as a three-and-a-half to four-foot-long rifle case and carried it up the grassy knoll. Knowing that the Secret Service was in town to oversee the President's visit, the film tells us, Mercer whimsically concluded that the Secret Service isn't so secret, after she drove off. After she received news of the assassination, 
Mercer contacted the sheriff's office to inform them of what she had seen. According to Lane's book and Stone's film, Mercer was absolutely certain in her interviews with the sheriff and FBI not only that the package she saw was a rifle, but that the man who sat in the truck's driver's seat was Jack Ruby, the man who would later kill Oswald, but whom she allegedly identified from a police mugshot the day before he murdered Lee Oswald on live TV. Mercer also stated that three Dallas police officers were standing nearby overlooking the rifle delivery service, but doing nothing to stop it. By the time the film's hero, New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, tracks Mercer down for an interview, all of her official statements have been replaced with doctored ones, and her signature forged. There never was any notary present during any of my questioning, she tells the DA. The film's Mercer is also suspicious that she was never deposed by the Warren Commission. And while she appears to be one of Garrison's most sober, trustworthy, and resolute witnesses, the New Orleans lawman sternly overrules his assistance and refuses to have her testify against their suspect, Clay Shaw. No clear explanation is ever given for this. In real life, Julia Ann Mercer's story was very different from the one offered by Mark Lane and Oliver Stone. Mercer did not, for instance, merely claim that the truck's driver looked like Jack Ruby. She also claimed that the man handling the rifle looked like Lee Harvey Oswald. Her other allegations were disproven by December 9, 1963, less than two weeks after the assassination, which is precisely the reason for which the Warren Commission had no interest in her as a witness. The real Mrs. Mercer made several statements during the days that followed Kennedy's murder. These were signed by her and authenticated by various officials working for the local sheriff, the Dallas police, the FBI, and the Secret Service. These include Dallas patrolman Joe Murphy, the person who had the best vantage point and longest involvement with the suspicious truck and its occupants, as well as Rosemary Allen, the Dallas notary public who acted as a signing witness to Mercer's voluntary statement to the sheriff's department and who could have easily been subpoenaed by the New Orleans District Attorney to testify concerning Mercer's participation when these documents were allegedly forged. Mrs. Allen could also have been interviewed by Mark Lane, or any other conspiracist with the time to contact her. Yet this has not been the case. Instead, Lane opened his book with this damning witness testimony, even though it defies our intelligence and, we'll soon see, had already been debunked. For it to be repeated in Stone's JFK a quarter century later is nothing less than a barefaced lie. To entertain the possibility that Mercer truly saw Jack Ruby and another man, possibly Lee Oswald, deliver a rifle to the grassy knoll, one would have to implicate many Dallas policemen and a civilian notary as part of the cover-up, not to mention the many other drivers who saw the same things Mercer witnessed but chose never to talk about it. One would also have to assume that rank-and-file members of the Dallas Police, of the Dallas FBI, and of the local Secret Service office trusted each other's loyalty enough to participate in an act of treason without fearing they might be denounced by some ambitious colleague whom they hardly knew. As many contemporaneous law enforcement documents show, a strong rivalry and deep suspicions existed between the Dallas Police and the FBI at the time making it unlikely that a conspiracy could be hatched between these two organizations. 
It also contradicts a central premise argued by most conspiracists, that Kennedy's assassination was a highly professional job designed to prevent its participants from ever being subject to prosecution. Indeed, there existed far more circumspect ways to deliver a rifle to the picket fence area. Parking a truck on a busy freeway on-ramp in broad daylight, thereby causing a traffic jam, and parading an easily identifiable rifle case up its grassy slope is certainly not one of them. The scenario presented by Mercer therefore suggests that these men were either complete idiots or deliberately trying to get arrested before they could perpetrate their murderous act. Is it possible that Mrs. Mercer was the only person to drive or walk past that truck with enough acumen to see what was really happening? Sure, it's possible. Is it probable? No. The inductive principle of Occam's razor invites us to choose the simplest explanation between two competing theories, the one that requires the fewest unproven assumptions. And the simplest explanation in this case is that Mrs. Mercer believed she saw a man delivering a rifle to the grassy knoll because it fit with the jumble of facts and faulty information that she gleaned from the media in the hours and days that followed the assassination and preceded her signed legal statements. Pictures of Oswald became headline news within a few hours of the murder. Jack Ruby got famous within two days. This would certainly not be the only case of a Dallas citizen who later claimed having seen Oswald or Ruby in places and times when they were known to be elsewhere. False memories occur frequently, especially after traumatic and confusing events. Psychiatrist Elizabeth Loftus, an expert in the formation of eyewitness memories, calls this the misinformation effect. In an article published in Scientific American, Loftus explains, quote, when people who witness an event are later exposed to new and misleading information about it, their recollections often become distorted. Misinformation has the potential for invading our memories when we talk to other people, when we are suggestively interrogated, or when we read or view media coverage about some event that we may have experienced ourselves." End quote. And that is exactly what the Dallas police, sheriff, and FBI concluded once the events surrounding Mercer's statements grew clearer. Stone's film does not state that Ruby and Oswald had alibis, but they did. Each having been seen during that time, Ruby inside the offices of the Dallas Morning News, where he was purchasing ads for his bars, and Oswald inside the Texas School Book Depository, going about his regular duties. And Mercer's statements were all made after she had seen Oswald and Ruby on television. Indeed, not much of Mercer's statements connects her to Kennedy's murder in any way. The two men and the truck that she briefly observed belonged, it turns out, to a different storyline, whose beginning and end she never witnessed, and thereby could not understand in its proper context. But this was not the case of Dallas patrolman Joe Murphy, who was at the scene throughout the incident. What he and Dallas police radio transcripts reveal, and what subsequent investigations concluded, was that shortly after 10.30 a.m., the pickup truck that Mercer would pass 20 minutes later had stalled and pulled onto the curb at the bottom of Elm Street, so that one of the three construction workers inside it might pull some tools from the cab in order to fix it. 
The alleged rifle that Mercer spotted, trusting her description alone, was merely a long tool inside a bag or a case, and not necessarily a weapon. In the meantime, three patrolmen assigned to watch the area until the passing of Kennedy's motorcade approached the vehicle to urge its driver to clear the street. Informed that the truck would not start, Officer Joe Murphy radioed dispatch for a tow truck to come and retrieve the vehicle. Learning that the man had been working at the First National Bank some six blocks away, and that another company truck had been left there unused, Murphy cancelled the order and escorted one of the three workers back to that building where he retrieved the other truck and returned to Dealey Plaza to push the first one out of the way. According to Special Agents Henry J. Oliver and Louis M. Kelly, who would later question Officer Murphy and file a Secret Service report on Mercer's allegations, quote, Murphy further stated it was probable that one of these men had taken something from the rear of this truck in an effort to start it. He stated these persons were under observation all during the period they were stalled on Elm Street because the officers wanted the truck moved prior to the arrival of the motorcade, and it would have been impossible for any of them to have had anything to do with the assassination of President Kennedy. End quote. What Julia Mercer witnessed, then, was nothing more than the middle segment of a mundane traffic mishap. But lacking the ability to interpret it rightly, she wove her own experience into the story of the assassination that she would learn about just a few hours later, simply because she had prematurely found herself in a place of utmost historical significance at a time when it still had none. But her story made sense to her once she could weave her experience into the Kennedy narrative, making her personal story a part of world history. Her place in world history, however, whatever her gut might have told her at the time, turned out to be inconsequential. But this story is also frustrating for those who, like me, hate loose ends. Because Officer Murphy never took note of the name of the construction company to whom that truck belonged, nor of the three workers, leaving ample mystery for Mark Lane, Jim Garrison, and Oliver Stone to exploit it unscrupulously. But it was enough to satisfy the Secret Service, the FBI, the Dallas police, and pretty much every author who isn't a victim of circular reasoning, to file away Mercer's story as a pointless distraction, or in our case, a cautionary tale. Stories like this one will no doubt keep suspicious conspiracists wondering what exactly happened in Dallas that day. But it is not unreasonable for the rest of us to conclude that, without reliable corroborating witnesses or additional evidence to support Julia Ann Mercer's strange sighting of Jack Ruby in Dealey Plaza, that stories like these should be taken with a large pinch of salt. And if you're so inclined, a slice of bologna. And that is the end of Part A of Episode 7.8. Join us very soon for Part B as we brush elbows with retired judge and former Warren Commission counsel Bert Griffin to talk about Lee Harvey Oswald, Jack Ruby, the Warren Commission, and how conspiracist Mark Lane assisted this judge in finding true love. Until then, don't leave your truck parked in Dealey Plaza unless you're willing to wade through a ton of paperwork or be made a villain in Stone's next creation. We'll see you soon.
Planet, a podcast about conspiracies, paradigm shifts, and critical thinking.